Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. And as I look around, I see some some glazed looks from people recovering from their mass consumption <laughs> this Thanksgiving holiday. You know, and each year I tell myself that I'm I'm, I'm just not going to overdo it this year. I'm gonna I'm gonna just only eat enough to be content, and I'm not gonna gorge myself, but then, you know, the trucks of food come rolling in and the table begins to bow a little bit under the weight of all of the food. And, you know, what do you say no to? You say no to the turkey or the, the dressing or the, the mashed potatoes, the green bean casserole, the desserts? Certainly not. <laughs> but enough about gluttony, enough about my lack of self-control. Let's instead turn our attention to the book of Philippians where we will once again seek to glean from the joyous truth that are found in its passages. But before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for giving us the opportunity to gather today on this Lord's Day to just open up your word and to really see what it has to teach us. So Lord, this morning I pray that you will just prepare all of our hearts, that you will help us all to to examine our hearts, to see where, where we're at with you, how we're living for you, and what we're doing to pursue you. So, Father, we uh, hold our time up to you and just ask that in everything you would be exalted and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the last time we were together, we talked about three steps that each of us must take if we are to grow in our pursuit of Christ's likeness. These three steps were possessing the right attitude, pursuing the right goal, and practicing the right standard. Now, these three steps were given to the Philippian church in an effort to to help them experience what Paul had come to experience, the joy that comes from walking in obedience in the Christian life. For Paul, there was no greater joy than knowing his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For knowing him a little more intimately, a little better, a little deeper. So it is that end that Paul labors to help the Philippians to walk in a proper way, to keep taking steps that will conform them more and more into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians three seventeen through 21, as the apostle continues to make his plea to the believers at Philippi to grow in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. This is what it says. It says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It is in this plea that we find three truths that will do much to aid the believer in his pursuit of Christ-likeness. And the first truth that we're going to look at this morning is There is a model for walking right. There is a model for walking right. Let's go back and look at verse 17. It says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
Now, in case any of us might be trying to think that this is Paul trying to get some accolades, getting some pats on the back or some egotistical approach, let me remind you of what he had just said in the verses preceding this, back in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3. It says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, in verse 12. And then 13, he says, I do not regard myself as laying, laying hold of it yet. Paul is far from trying to elevate himself onto some kind of a pedestal of perfection. He was a man who saw himself as the chief of sinners, as seen in 1 Timothy 1.15. He also called himself a wretched man as he saw the battle that was taking place in his mind and in his flesh, as, a, as seen in Romans 7.24. So Paul is in no way making any arrogant claims for the Philippians to follow his perfect footsteps. Unlike some of the false teachers that were threatening to creep into the church, Paul never claims to have arrived. Instead, his is a journey. It's a journey that will take him to a deeper, more personal commitment to Jesus Christ. It is a journey that will take him through many ups and downs, but in the end, a journey that will leave him conformed into the very likeness of Christ Jesus. So what Paul is really calling them to do is to follow his strong desire to know Jesus Christ more, along with the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death this was the example that Paul was calling them to follow. A single-minded, utterly devoted pursuit of Christ-likeness. It was Paul's single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ that enabled him to count his former manner of life, his former accomplishments, as rubbish. It was his desire to being a servant of Christ that enabled him to write in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 27, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonment, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Paul is calling the Philippians and us to embrace his burning ambition to keep growing, to keep pressing on until he finishes the race. The ultimate example that Paul sought to follow was Jesus Christ himself. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul writes this. He says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So to the extent that I follow Jesus Christ, follow me. Paul's was a life that was modeled 
after Jesus Christ. His was a life that took seriously the commands of Jesus when he said in Matthew sixteen twenty four, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul's was a life that was patterned, that patterned itself after the suffering servants. Paul was a man who possessed the right attitude. And because of that, he could tell the Philippians to follow his example. Follow me as I follow Christ. It was this right attitude that moved the Apostle Paul to write these words in Philippians 1.21 when he says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no question that Paul spent countless hours pouring into the Philippian believers. He taught them the great doctrine of grace, the great doctrine of salvation and all that accompanies it. He taught them the great doctrine regarding Christ's deity and many other things. And all of these things were totally necessary. And yet all of these things would mean very little if Paul's life did not back up these teachings. It was the apostles' total commitment to growing in Christ-likeness that impacted the daily choices that he made, that radically impacted how he spoke and how he treated other people. And how he lived his life. Let's have you look at it this way. I want you to all humor me. I'm a children's pastor here. So I just want you to pretend like you're, you know, kids in children's church right now. And I want you to follow along with me. I want you to take your index finger and your thumb. And I want you to put them together just like this. Don't worry. Nobody's going to laugh at you. All, you're all doing it. So it's not a big deal. So you kind of put it together just like this. Right. Now what I want you to do is I want you to take that circle that you formed. And I want you to put it right here on your chin. Now look to the person next to you and say, that's not your chin. Your chin is that thing that is right underneath your mouth, not to the side of it. All right. This illustration helps us to understand this point, the power of example. It has been said that the most valuable gift you can give another is a good example Not only did Paul give the Philippians good theology, but he also gave them a good example. He did not give them a perfect example because he was not a perfect man, but he did give them a good one, one that was worth following after. I don't know about you, but I always appreciate imperfect people. I can relate to them because I'm not perfect. I I stumble. I fall. And Paul was somebody who did that too. But I'm also confident that Paul was a man who when he made mistakes, he he went out of his way to make things right. He went out of his way to show them how when a Christian man makes a mistake, this is how he gets things right. This is how he goes about fixing things and getting things right with the people he's offended, but more importantly with the God that he sinned against. Paul was a good example for the Philippians back then. And he's a good example to us today. But Paul was not the only one that served as a good example to the Philippians. Notice what the second part of verse 17 says. It says, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. There were others 
who shared the same attitude, the same single-minded devotion to Christ-likeness as Paul. So who were they? Who were the others that the Philippians were to follow after, whose example was, like Paul's, worth following? Well, for all intents and purposes, the us in Paul's letter seems to be referring to his traveling members of his team, namely Timothy and Epaphroditus. We see this in Philippians 1.1, whereby, first of all, Timothy is linked with him in the greeting. It says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. It is Timothy who is later to be sent to minister to the church on Paul's behalf, as evidenced in Philippians 2, 19 through 21, where it says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. In addition to Timothy, Paul also held his fellow worker and fellow soldier Epaphroditus in high regard. We see this in Philippians 2, 25 through 29, where it says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. So it appears that the us that Paul has in mind are his two beloved traveling companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul is in essence challenging these Philippian believers to look at the lives of these men, not just his, this wasn't just a one man show. This wasn't just Paul saying, Hey, look at me, but rather look at us, look at these other men and follow them. They had seen these men, no doubt, in a variety of circumstances and situations. They've seen them working together. They've seen them individually. They've seen their single-minded devotion to Christ. It was on display for all of the Philippian believers to see, and Paul was now calling on them to follow them. For Paul, the Christian life was not all about him and his particular peculiarities. Instead, it was all about becoming more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And this message, brothers and sisters, still needs to ring true today. If you and I are to experience the joy of the Christian life, then we must follow godly examples. We must surround ourselves with men and women who are seeking to glorify God in every aspect of their lives, that are seeking to follow the example that Christ has laid out for us. Each of us should be striving to follow the lives of those that are more mature than us, not putting them up on some kind of a pedestal, not elevating them to a point of of perfection, but instead watching and learning 
as they deal with their failures and their shortcomings. The Christian life is not about rugged individualism, but rather it's about holding one another up in prayer. It's about bearing one another's burdens. It's about encouraging one another on to love and good deeds. Believers have always needed examples to help them to live the Christian life. They've always needed to see the Christian life played out practically by flesh and bone. We need that if we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Paul was a, was a man who truly understood this. And so he offers up himself and others like him who are seeking to live for Christ and Christ alone. And while the Philippians had Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, God has given us their example, but he's also given us flesh and bone. He's given us elders. These elders, according to 1 Timothy 4.12, are to show themselves as an example to those who believe. They are to move forward in such a way that their progress would be evident for all to see. This is by no means an easy task, and yet there is great blessing that flows from the life of an elder. Blessing for him individually and blessing for the entire church body. What the church needs today are elders whose lives are motivated by the sound truths that God is. That the only way to approach God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that the Holy Spirit is the enabling power that helps believers everywhere to live God-honoring lives. God has raised up a group of men at Calvary Bible Church that are by no means perfect. But I'll tell you what, they are men that are worth following after. They are men who have a a single focus to honor Christ. And they make mistakes and they fall short. But they're quick to make things right with the ones they offend. But more importantly, with their God. So having uncovered the first truth behind aiding a believer in his pursuit of Christ likeness, we are now ready to look at the second truth. That being, there is a madness in walking wrong. There is a madness in walking wrong. Let's look at the next two verses, verses 18 and 19. It says, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Paul makes it a point to let the Philippians know that there are people out there, people that they know that are enemies of the cross of Christ. In all probability, they were individuals that professed Christ with their lips, but utterly denied him with their lifestyle. They were professing believers that lacked the fruit of the regenerated life. And Paul calls them enemies of the cross. When I think back at all the harm that has been done at the hands of professing Christians. Throughout history, Christianity has suffered its share of bumps and bruises as the world has looked on in disgust at the behavior and conduct of the quote-unquote Christian. 
Paul knew the damage that these so-called believers could wreak within the Philippian church. It broke his heart to think about the havoc that was being incurred at the hands of these false believers, these false teachers. Now, there are a lot of opinions as to just who these enemies of the cross might have been. But the two arguments that seem to carry the most weight are that these enemies were either antinomian Christians, basically people who had completely distorted Paul's teaching on the doctrine of grace and thus made Christian liberty the rubber stamp for them to do whatever they wanted to do whenever they wanted to do it. Their line of reasoning was this. It was, it was a heart of Gnosticism, a, a dangerous second century heresy that taught of a dualistic philosophy, namely that the spirit was good and all matter was evil. Now, according to them, since the body was matter, it is and was inherently evil. And for them, salvation was a means by which the spirit would finally be set free from this evil matter, the body. Since the body was evil then, it really didn't matter what one did with it. If one wanted to, one could be a drunkard, a glutton, a homosexual, an adulterer, or even a fornicator. It just didn't matter because the act only impacted the body, which was matter, which meant that it was evil. So as far as as these thinkers were concerned, the spirit was left unscathed by these acts against the body. The body was free to do whatever it wanted to, but the spirit would remain intact. Now, the other argument is that these enemies of the cross were Judaizers. These people opposed the gospel of free grace as presented by Paul. They simply refused to believe that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient to reconcile them with God. Therefore, they attempted to require the keeping of the law as a necessary supplement to salvation. This group of Judaizers were trying to change the means by which a person was saved from faith alone to faith plus certain Jewish practices. And that's at the beginning of chapter 3 that we see Paul refer to these false teachers. He calls them dogs, evil workers, and mutilators. Theirs was a works-based salvation, and Paul knew all too well the futility of trying to earn his salvation, of trying to somehow have his self-imposed righteousness that would make him right before God. No, the gospel that the Philippians had learned from Paul was that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone. Any attempts at making salvation faith plus anything is an abomination. In his letter to the Galatians, Galatians, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 8, he said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, He is to be accursed. Now, in the long run, I must confess, it matters little just who Paul is referring to as these enemies of the cross because both groups are alive and well today. 
both groups need to be guarded against. Both groups have and are misrepresenting the gospel. And let me tell you, this is no insignificant matter. Jerry Bridges writes this. He says, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history. It is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. Brothers and sisters, if we get the gospel wrong, we get it all wrong. If we don't understand the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, we don't understand the fundamental truth of Christianity. If we don't come to the cross and see ourselves for who we really are, sinners that are fully deserving of God's wrath, then we will never experience the joy of true salvation. The cross is what separates the believer from the unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians one twenty three, one twenty three, Paul writes this. He says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. The world looks at the cross and, and they just don't get it. The Judaizers and the antinomians look at the cross and they distort it. Both are enemies of the cross. Both are doomed for the same damning effect. There is no hope for those who distort the gospel. Paul puts it in no uncertain terms. He says their end is destruction. The same fate that awaits the opposing world and the beast of revelation awaits these same enemies of the cross. There is no hope for them. They have heard the truth and turned away from it. They have had the gospel preached to them only to fashion it into something that fits their own wants, their own desires. They have attempted to make a God that is pleasing to their fancies. And in the end, and in the end their God will lead them to the lake of fire, the second death. Understanding this, then we see that there is a madness in walking wrong. It's complete foolishness to walk in opposition to the cross of Christ. Anyone who reads the Bible and accepts it by faith as the word of God cannot live in whatever manner suits their interest. They must come under the authority of the word of God. They must believe that it is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. A person cannot come to the word of God, learn the truth about Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished on the cross and walk away unchanged. For he will either be moved to pursue Jesus Christ or he will be moved to continue living in an unregenerate state, a a state that is hostile at enmity with God. Many in the church today are living like Judaizers and antinomians. They are either trying to earn their way to heaven through their various acts of righteousness, their good deeds, which are really nothing more than filthy rags before the Lord, or they are leading the hedonistic lifestyle, a lifestyle whereby anything goes. I assure you that neither of these is Christian, despite whatever claims these people may make. 
It's possible that some of you in here are caught up in one of these two manners of living right now. Despite the fact that you've been coming to church for years, despite the fact that you've grown up in a Christian home, despite the fact that people perceive you as being a quote-unquote good person, inside, you are still trying to earn God's favor. Inside, you are still thinking that you could be good enough, that you can have the good deeds of your life outweigh the bad ones. Or maybe there's some of you in here that are living a double life. A life that finds you here on Sundays, but embracing the lusts and the mindsets of the world the rest of the days. A life that is in direct rebellion against what the Word of God calls you to. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul writes these words of warning. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There is a madness in walking wrong. If you know the truth and yet harden your heart against it, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, according to Romans 2.5. The so-called believer who is not moved to repentance by the grace of God will have a life that will end in destruction. He will also have a life that is characterized by worshiping himself. Paul writes this. He says, whose God is their appetite, or as the King James Version puts it, whose God is their belly. These are people that are consumed with their own personal gratification. As one commentator puts it, they recognize no need and no authority outside personal satisfaction. Their appetites dictate their lives. This way of living is anything but biblical. Titus 2, 11, 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. There is nothing Christian about catering to your own wants and desires. The Christian life is all about dying to yourself so that Christ may live through you and be glorified in you. Many who profess Christ live their lives as if the most important thing in life was their happiness. Them being happy. Never mind the glory of God. Their God is their comfort, their personal satisfaction. Paul goes on to write of a third characteristic of these so-called believers. Their glory is in their shame. This simply means that instead of being ashamed by their conduct, they are actually boasting in it. It'd be like somebody going out and getting drunk and then coming and telling you about how crazy and how wild it was. And they got so drunk and plastered or they went out and they got high 
And instead of being ashamed of it, they are actually boasting in it. Instead of it being a source of shame, they brag. And this is the ultimate in wickedness because it attempts to take something that is clearly wrong and make it right. It flies in the face of God's word and as if that wasn't enough, it glorifies sin and it makes light of the work that Jesus Christ performed on the cross. From here, Paul goes on to to write the fourth and final characteristic of these false teachers, that being they set their minds on earthly things. These are people that lack what I like to call an eternal perspective. They can't see past the here and the now. Their whole attention, their point of view, or how they tend to look at things is all they can see. What's going on right now in front of them at this very moment is all that consumes them and directs what they do and the decisions that they make. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ will be coming back in the not too distant future? Do you really believe that you are a child of God, a fellow heir with Christ? Do you really believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and thus adequate for equipping you to know and carry out God's will? How you answer these questions, assuming that you answer them honestly, can tell a lot about where your mind is, whether or not you have an eternal focus. Paul lived his life on this earth but he always had one eye looking up. And it, his, and it was his ability to do this that enabled him to go through many difficult trials, many hardships. Because he knew in the end that it was all going to work out. That God was going to make things right. That everything was going to be restored to its proper place. Nobody was getting away with anything. God would be glorified The deeds of the evil workers would be revealed. So Paul held on to that. And it allowed him to go through many difficult times. The false teachers that Paul warned the Philippian church about are still alive and well today. Although they have been taught the truth, they refuse to submit to the truth. And thus their lives are destined for destruction. We would do well to learn from Paul's rebuke of them and to make sure that we do not allow them to lead us astray, that we are on guard. Having seen that there is a model for walking right and that there is a madness for walking wrong, let us now look at the third truth in this passage that will aid us in our pursuit of Christ-likeness, that being there is a magnificence in walking home. There is a magnificence in walking home. Look at verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven... 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The first thing that I want you to take notice of is the fact that Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. It is not something that is going to happen. It is something that has already happened. The moment we put our hope and our trust and our faith in the person of Jesus Christ, we become born again, citizens born into the heavenly colony. Though we still live in this world, our real citizenship is in heaven. As such, our names are recorded in heaven according to Luke 10.20. Our Lord Jesus is in heaven, according to Acts 1.11. The great saints that have died and gone before us are in heaven, according to Hebrews 12.23. Our inheritance is in heaven, according to 1 Peter 1.4. Our reward is in heaven, Matthew 5.12. And our treasure is in heaven, Matthew 6.20. Though we do not live in heaven right now, our citizenship is there. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are right now under his kingly rule and protection. This whole concept of citizenship would have resonated well with the the Philippian believers because their city had been designated a Roman colony. But not only that, it had also been awarded the highest legal privilege obtainable by any provincial municipality, which means that its citizens were also citizens of Rome with all of the rights and privileges of those who were actually born in the imperial city. The Philippians were Roman citizens, even though they lived outside of Rome. The believer is a citizen of heaven even though he is currently living outside of heaven. And really, if you stop and think about it, every living person is a citizen belonging to one of two kingdoms, is he not? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the world? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? If you are a Christian, Jesus Christ is your king and your allegiance and your devotion is to him and for him alone. As citizens of heaven, we have a right to appear before the king, a right of access to the throne, a right of taking our request to him and of making our request to him. It is this heavenly citizenship that enables us to live within Satan's kingdom of darkness without being conformed to it, without being overcome by it. It is this heavenly citizenship that makes our hearts long for the return of our King, Jesus Christ. And because we love Him and we want to bring Him glory, we know, we know that we need to be busy doing His work. Let me ask you this. Do you long for Christ's return? Do you ever just stare up at the clouds and think that those are Jesus clouds. And, and today, maybe today, will be the day. Or are you on the other side? Do you find yourself still wanting to do more in this life? Not quite ready to have Jesus come back. Because you haven't quite gotten to all of your little 
boxes to check off, all the things you've wanted to do, all of the experiences you've wanted to have. Brothers and sisters, that is a wrong attitude. Each of us who calls ourselves a Christian should be eagerly waiting for the Savior's return. We should be longing to see Christ, our King, coming to once and for all subdue the kingdom of Satan. We should be praying for the rapture to come right now so that we can finally experience the magnificence of walking home, of being where we belong in the presence of our great God, Jesus Christ. A day is coming when Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. On that day, we will be given bodies that are fit for our home in heaven. We'll be like Christ's resurrection body. It will be recognizable. It will be able to eat, to talk, to walk, but it will not have the physical restrictions of our current bodies. I don't know about you, but man, do I look forward to that day with great anticipation. I can't wait for Jesus to exert his power and bring all things into subjection of himself. What an awesome day that will be. A day whereby we will see the world made right and our fellowship with the sovereign Lord will function in total perfection. This morning, we have uncovered three truths that will aid each of us in our pursuit of Christ likeness. By remembering these three truths, we will spare ourselves a great deal of pain and sorrow as we strive to grow more and more into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. These three truths are, there is a model for walking right. There is a madness in walking wrong. And there is a magnificence in walking home. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truths that it contains and how it reminds us that this world is not our home. That we are simply sojourners passing through. We are citizens of another land. And so, Father, help us to live as the citizens that we are. Help us to bring you glory and how we conduct our lives while we are in this this foreign land. Help us to seek to tell others about your goodness and and your greatness and the majesty of your kingdom. Lord, help us to proclaim the gospel. And may we just see many leave their citizenship of this world And take it up in heaven. We thank you for our time together this morning. We pray that you will use it for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen.